Imagine living in the harsh desert world of the Bedouin 1,400 years ago. You live out with your tribe on the unforgiving, baking desert, trying to scratch out a living by raising livestock when you can, and rarely seeing other people. When you do come into contact with other tribes, it's potentially dangerous. These are your enemies, and war between tribes is an almost constantly ongoing thing. But once a year or so, if you're lucky, you get to make a trip to the city of Mecca. Compared to the Bedouin world from which you came, it's a dazzling world where all the tribes gather, where all sorts of products are on sale. Products from all over the world, spices, oils. And at the center of it all is the shrine, the Kaaba. There in the shrine, over 300 idols representing the gods of all the different tribes, stretching as far as the desert itself. Everyone can worship their god in peace. It's a place where you can interact with all the other tribes, where you can hear the latest news, where you can hear stories coming in from the desert, from the seas and beyond. Then, you hear about a preacher who is talking against the idols, calling people to put away their idols, to smash them and replace them with the worship of his one God. Well, as you would imagine, the city fathers don't put up with this very well. They take him and his followers and chase them out of town, sending them north, hopefully never to be seen again. But then on one of your later return trips to the city of Mecca, just a few years after, you hear about the movement of an army, an army unseen in this part of the world before, 10,000 fighting men coming down from the north and preparing to come back to this city of Mecca, to take its Kaaba, to dedicate it to the one God. This would seem like an incredible change of history. But could you even imagine that this army that was coming to take Mecca would one day rule an empire that stretched to corners of the world you had never heard of and never knew existed. This was the amazing turn of history that was happening. Hello, and welcome back to episode two of the podcast. When we left off last time, Islam ruled at least a very small piece of the world, and that was the city of Yathrib, which is known today as Medina. And as you remember, the word Medina actually means city. Now, 13 years after the Prophet Muhammad had begun to receive the revelations calling for a strict monotheism, in the process he enraged the people of the Quraysh of his city of Mecca, whose livelihood depended on the pagan shrine at the city's center. Remember the Kaaba with its 360 pagan idols. The early Muslim community was in a very dangerous position, and so they migrated from Mecca to Yathrib where they set up the first Islamic community. Now, this event was so significant that the Muslim calendar actually begins in this year, 622 AD, is year zero, with the migration, or hijrah, as it's called in Arabic. That reflects the importance of community in Islam. I mean, Islam remains, and, and definitely was at the time, a community faith. I mean, yes, it is an individual responsibility, but so much of it is based on community that the founding of the first Muslim community is seen as the start of a new era of history. 
you might think it would be the time of the very first revelation, but that's not what it is. Now for the next four centuries, history would move in one direction. That Islamic community would get larger, stronger, and more influential. And at one point, ruling over the land from Spain to the borders of China. We hear a lot of speculation today about what a Muslim state would look like, and most of it is alarmist and certainly fed by the abomination that calls itself ISIS or Islamic State. But the truth is that Islam without a state would have been difficult to imagine back at this time in the Middle Ages. Islam was never set up as a religion separate from a political, economic, or social community. Deen wa dunya, as is said in Arabic literally religion and the world. It would not be until a time of decline, of conquest and colonialism, that the Muslim lands would be forced to deal with a situation where they weren't controlling a major state. So this first Muslim community, or Ummah in Arabic, that was formed in Medina is still seen today as the blueprint, the model of an ideal Islamic community, and one that would inform the later Muslim states. So in this episode, we want to look at that community. We want to look at this first Muslim government, get an idea of how it developed, why it turned into a powerful empire, and particularly the relationship of Islam with the other religions during the time. It will take us right up to the situation on the death of the Prophet. So please, stay with us. Welcome back. The situation in the city of Medina was very different from Mecca. Mecca, as you remember, was dominated by one tribe, the Quraysh, who were custodians of the pagan shrine known as the Kaaba, which is now the black cube at the center of Muslim ritual. As we said last time, this was a center of pagan worship for the Bedouin tribes, and because of that, the city enjoyed status as a true city. It was an open city that the Bedouin could come to, and therefore it became a major economic, trading, and communications hub. So as you would imagine, Muhammad, with his call to turn away from these idols, was a threat to the very power base and the income base of the Quraysh. And by 622, the town had really become too hostile for him. Now, if we look at Medina, on the other hand, this was a city occupied by several different tribes who had been in a state of war for up to 120 years, according to some accounts. The city had once been the domain of three powerful Jewish tribes, which were at one time allied with the Persian Empire, until the migration of two strong Arab tribes, polytheistic tribes from Yemen in the south. And these were the Benu Aus and the Benu Khazraj. Benu is a plural of son, and, and it's a way of referring to a large family grouping, which is really what tribes were. They're very large families, extended families. The sources are not that clear on the pre-Islamic period, but we do know at the time of the Hijra, the Benu Aus and the Benu Khazraj were at war, and different Jewish tribes were allied on both sides. In 617, there was a major battle between them that inflicted severe losses on both sides and really killed off much of the leadership of all the tribes 
uh, and left the city of Medina without leadership and very divided. It was in a, in a pretty bad situation. Now, meanwhile, a group of travelers, they were originally from the, the Khazraj, had, had met the Prophet Muhammad and heard his message. And they were impressed enough with him and with his message that they converted to Islam. The next year, they brought a group of their supposed enemies, the Aus, with them, who also converted to Islam. And by this time, there were about 70 who had converted to Islam. I don't want to be too crude about this, but converting to Islam was a way for these battered, weary tribes to put aside their feuds and patch things up without losing face. So where Islam was threatening the existing order in Mecca, it was actually a means of restoring order in Medina. And so Islam spread rapidly in Medina, as did the reputation of the Prophet Muhammad. So in 622, this critical year, a delegation from Medina met with him and invited his people to relocate to the city of Medina, to Yathrib. I mean, they knew how precarious the position was in Mecca. And they also invited the Prophet Muhammad to serve as a mediator between the factions. If there were any doubt about the political skill of the Prophet, it would be erased when he drafted the, quote, Constitution of Medina, or sometimes called the Accord of Medina, Mithak al-Medina. And it's, it's really a better term because it's not a complete constitution like the U.S. Constitution or even the constitution that Greek city-states had. It's more of a treaty of status between the different factions in the party, and it really focuses on the ideas of war and peace between them. But it really stands as an example to us of how important law and order, how important government was in Islam. Remember, at this point, there's still 10 more years of Quranic revelation to come, and we've already got the first Islamic constitution. We have the first Islamic state before we even have the entire Quran revealed. And in its own right, the Constitution is really a remarkable document. First of all, what it's doing, it's establishing a state based on mutual agreement rather than bloodline. So remember in Arabia, everything was based on bloodlines. We had tribes and we had families, but tribes were actually large extended families. This is creating a state of people of very different, of different religions, of different backgrounds and origins, who join together by mutual consent. And I mean, that sounds very much like what we think of as a modern state. Furthermore, it calls on these people to accept a higher allegiance than blood ties, and this is specifically a allegiance to God. One of the articles of this constitution requires all members of the community to oppose those who commit injustice or corruption. And then it says specifically, even if they are sons or brothers. Now, that is a very heavy clause in Bedouin society, because in, in the Bedouin tradition, blood is what binds us together. You stick with the members of your family no matter what, even when they've done something wrong. And this is really how most of the wars get started. You have one member of your tribe goes out and, and kills a person or livestock from another tribe, and now you're bound to them, you're bound to defend that person, and the other side feels bound to take revenge, not just on the person who did it, but on the entire tribe. Here, we're told that there's a sense of right and wrong that supersedes family relations. And this is, this is a huge departure. This constitution also guarantees the rights of the Jews. Now, there, there was no Christian element in the city at this time, so all we have is uh, Jewish-Muslim relations to go by. But it says specifically that Jews will not be harmed for being Jews. 
and quote, they will be treated with equality. And there's even one phrase that says, they have their religion and we have our religion. And so they were beginning to recognize that these were being treated as different religions. The Jews who are a part of this agreement are guaranteed protection and that their enemies will become the enemies of the Muslims and similarly their allies will become allies of the Muslims. This is radical when we consider the nature of politics such that it was in Bedouin society. Now having said all that, however, this charter definitely puts the Muslims in the position of power. Muhammad is designated as the arbiter of all disputes. I mean, he is the final authority. Of course, technically it says God is the final authority, but represented by the prophet Muhammad. And the believers, the Muslims, are required to never take the side of a non-believer in a dispute. But still, the terms of the agreement had to be acceptable and attractive to the non-Muslim population of Medina, because remember, they invited the prophet to come in and establish this community. This charter really reflects the beginnings of one of the most important principles in Muslim relations with other faiths, and it's one of the most controversial. Much of the Constitution talks about status in war and peace and the obligations on the different parties. There are two separate clauses that deal with situations when Jews are fighting alongside the Muslims against a common enemy and when they are not participating. Because, if, remember, it was a very hostile environment. And the Muslim forces were really constantly at war with other enemies. And so this was a very common situation. Now, members of other religions, here being the Jews, were exempt from participating in wars that didn't concern them. But when they were not participating in a war, they would be required to pay compensation for the war effort. And this was usually at first in terms of agricultural goods and support materials, and later it became monetary. But the foundational idea was that war was a near constant activity, and it really took away the active members of the community to go out and fight. Uh, there was no such thing as a standing army. I mean, the army of a tribe was all its healthy male members. And so when they were out fighting, they weren't doing the other activities that they needed to do to support the community. And they would also suffer losses. So the arrangement is that those in the community who were benefiting from their protection would be required to pay for that to make compensation. This becomes one of the cornerstone principles of Muslim government for the next millennium, really. Religious minorities were always allowed to govern their own affairs, have their own courts, practice their own religion. They were exempt from participating in the wars, but they would pay a tax, which would later be known as the jizya, and we'll talk uh, a lot about that in the next episode. But by the standards of the 7th century, this was a very benevolent arrangement. So we really have to wonder how different history might have been if this first community had not been established the way it was. If the people of Medina had not invited Muhammad in, asked for his leadership, and really created a condition in which a mutually acceptable arrangement between Jews, Muslims, and pagans had to be worked out, that precedent had not been established. Would the situation in the large Muslim empire that governed much of the known world have been different? The next major incident in Muslim history is a very controversial sequence of events, and one that's worth looking at in some detail because of the different viewpoints on it today. 
And this is the famous Treaty of Hudaybiyah, which was made between the Muslims of Medina and the Quraysh, the enemies uh, of Mecca, in 628. And remember, that's six years after the Hijra. Throughout this time, the Muslim numbers have been growing. Their community has been getting stronger and larger. And the momentum has definitely been on their side. There had been several battles between the two sides. There were two major battles in 624 AD, the Battle of Badr, which was a victory for the Muslims, and the Battle of Uhud, which was a defeat for the Muslims. Uh, and in full disclosure, I have to say that this series of battles did begin with a Muslim attack on a Meccan trade caravan. Then there came a major Muslim victory at the Battle of the Trench in 627. By this time, uh, the Muslim forces had become very strong, and they had a powerful reputation. And it was very clear that the Quraysh were not going to eliminate this element. So in 628, the two sides met, and they made a 10-year truce, or hudna, as it's called in Arabic. And this Arabic word is significant because it's actually related to calm or quiet. In any case, this truce wouldn't last anywhere near 10 years. Two years later, it was broken, and it's reportedly when one of the tribes under the Meccan coalition attacked one of the tribes under the Medinan coalition. If you remember, all of the, the different tribes in Medina were under Muhammad's protection because of the constitution of Medina. Well, considering the treaty to have been broken, Muhammad assembled a very large force and marched on Mecca in 629. It's said to have been a 10,000-man army that moved. This was the largest army that had been seen in this area. The result, however, was a peaceful surrender. Muhammad had given his troops orders not to attack unless attacked first, and three of the four Muslim divisions entered the city peacefully. A skirmish broke out against the fourth, and a total of 14 people died, but it was quickly ended. Even the leader of the Quraysh, Abu Sufyan, converted to Islam at that point, and he would go on to become one of the most important military leaders in the Muslim forces in the later conquest. In fact, it would be his son, Muawiyah, who would form the first Islamic dynasty, which we will talk about more in later episodes. Muhammad gave orders that the people of Mecca were not to be harmed. Essentially, anyone who stayed inside their home was to be left alone. But at any rate, the momentum of conversion to Islam was definitely moving fast, and Mecca would, of course, become a Muslim city and eventually the center of the religion. So that's what happened, but there are two very different viewpoints on how to interpret these events. And as you might guess, we're going to come down somewhere in the middle between them. On the one hand, there's this idea of a hudna, or a temporary truce, which is discussed today, uh, particularly in the case of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Even hardline Islamist groups like Hamas, who do not accept the idea of a permanent two-state solution, meaning a permanent uh, Jewish state in what they consider to be Palestinian land, accept the idea of a hudna, which sees the coexistence with Israel as something temporary. Some Islamic jurists say that a hudna can only be 10 years long because that's how long the prophet's hudna with Quraysh was supposed to be, but others do not see this uh, limitation. Now, beyond this, there is the mercy that we see in the conquest. Basically, there was no retribution against the Prophet's enemies, and even enemy leaders would go on to become important members of the Muslim side. We're talking about a time in history when 
groups like the Vikings, the Huns, and the Vandals were ravaging Europe and sacking cities. When we look at it in those terms, this seems uh, positively merciful and benevolent. On the other side, though, there are a lot of commentators, and they're all over the internet, take a very dim view of the truce of Hudaybiyah and see it as proof that a treaty with the Muslims cannot be trusted. First thing they point out, and they usually say this as if they discovered some secret agenda, that the Hudna was only temporary and that Muhammad's real purpose was to strengthen his forces for the eventual conquest of Mecca. It was never really claimed to be anything else. It was never intended to be a permanent truce, and no one seriously thought that Muhammad would give up designs on converting his hometown and all the relatives he left behind. Now, secondly, Muhammad is accused of using the flimsiest of pretenses to consider the treaty broken. This one's a lot harder to refute, uh, especially since the constitution of Medina did have provisions in it for seeking redress in the case of one member of the community being killed by an outsider. So it really doesn't seem like the incident that broke this treaty necessarily had to be the end of it. But the reality, though, is that these points aside, the big thing that was changing here was the increasing spread of Islam. Muhammad may have left Mecca as an outcast in 622, but by the time this treaty was made six years later, uh, he was definitely the stronger force. And by 629, the balance was swinging rapidly in his favor. And the evidence of this, of course, is how easy Mecca capitulated. The Muslims were probably convinced that the violation had been enough to justify breaking the treaty. But the main thing is that this treaty was really irrelevant to them at this time. Um, they were seeing Mecca essentially becoming a Muslim city, and in, in their minds, it was theirs for the taking. In any event, there would be centuries of diplomatic agreements between Muslim and non-Muslim powers that we can look at. We don't have to infer everything from this one narrative. This does lead us now to a larger issue that's going to play a critical role in how the history of Islam develops. And that is that Islam definitely sees itself as the final revelation, the seal on all that has gone before. The certainty that Muhammad is the final prophet and his message is the last is essential to Islam. And there is, of course, a necessity to spread this message everywhere to all parts of the world, just as it is in Christianity. Remember, there's a belief that those who die without God or denying God are going to suffer eternal torment in hell. Islam does specifically forbid conversion by force. But the key point is that in the early centuries of Islam, all the way up to the 10th century, what was going on in the ground definitely seemed to validate the idea of Islam being the final word, the final revelation. I mean, the state of Islam was spreading rapidly. The numbers of Muslims were increasing constantly. Polytheism died out fairly quickly. And the, even the Christians within the borders of the Islamic rule were gradually but steadily converting to Islam. And so this benevolent treatment we see of the subject peoples did seem to help speed up this process. 
and Mecca being a perfect example. I mean, had there been a lot of bloodshed there, we probably wouldn't have seen later communities so willing to accept Islam and allow Muslim forces to come in. There was a famous book published about 20 years ago that caused quite a stir. It was called The End of History. And in this book, the author claimed that with the fall of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War, we had reached the, quote, end of history, meaning that this was it. Capitalism and democracy, the Western way of life had won out, and it would be this way forever. Well, of course, we've seen that that isn't exactly what happened in the years since then. But this idea of reaching a final end, that history is heading towards a certain very good end and that we have reached it is very similar to what we see happening in the Islamic world. But what we're going to see in later episodes is the problems that really come in when this historical process seems to go backwards. And this is something that Islamic doctrine was really not prepared to deal with. Over its formative centuries, at least the first four centuries of Islam, everything that happened politically, militarily, and we'll see in science and economics, everything was validating and supporting this idea of Islam being the final word, the final order. When that goes backwards, when the Muslim empire begins to lose territory, Christian forces, to pagan forces, uh, Islamic doctrine is really not prepared to deal with this. And this is when the real crisis comes in. We can also observe a fundamental difference here between the origins of Christianity and Islam. Remember, Christianity begins as a minority movement. It's really an underground movement in the largest empire in the world, the Roman Empire. Christians wouldn't have any political power, really, until three centuries after Christ, by which time the Christian scriptures had been agreed upon and most of the doctrines had been formed. In the New Testament, Jesus commanded his followers to render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And he disappointed those members of the Jewish community who wanted him to lead a military revolution and reestablish the kingdom of David and Solomon. Now, Islam, by contrast, begins almost from its earliest days as a political, military, economic, social entity, as well as a religion. There really, there was never any separation of church and state, of religion and politics in Islam. The prophet, he was a military leader and a political leader, as well as a religious figure. Really, there was no sense of these being different roles. Remember the origins of Bedouin leadership. You had one tribal leader, or you had a set of tribal elders who were considered to be wise in all matters. You didn't have a ministry of economics and a ministry of defense in a situation like that. The other thing that's significant, though, as we said, this first Islamic community is established at a time when the Muslim scriptures are still being revealed. And we have two main divisions in the Quran. There are the Meccan surahs and the Medinan surahs. A surah is roughly equivalent to a book in the Bible. Of course, the Meccan surahs are those that were revealed during the time the prophet was in Mecca, during those first years before the migration to Medina. The Medinan surahs, of course, were revealed during the time in Medina. The big difference is the context. 
In Medina, we're talking about the governing of a Muslim state, and particularly a state that is at war for much of its history. And so political, military issues are reflected in that. And in fact, we get in the Quran some very specific commands dealing with relations with specific other tribes, dealing with battles. It's something we don't find in the New Testament, for example. We don't find the New Testament dealing with issues like prisoners of war, spoils of battle, legal rights of non-Christians under a Christian government. So this leads to some very unfair comparisons because we have Muhammad recorded leading battles while Jesus is telling his disciples to put away their swords. But that's really mixing up the context. When European states eventually become Christianized later on, it's easy to write off their actions, which are often very brutal, as the result of excesses and misinterpretations by earthly rulers. We can write off the entire series of crusades by saying, well, that didn't happen during the time of the scriptures. That was done by political leaders. However, you can't do the same thing in Islam because the early political, military history, and legal history of Islam is reflected in its scriptures. So we're comparing very different things. We can remember, by analogy, that the Old Testament, which does record the Israelites at times as a functioning state, at times as a kingdom, uh, which was at war with enemies, it celebrates the killing of other tribes. Think of Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands as a celebration. My point here is not to try and compare these monotheistic faiths. I think any attempt to label one of them as more violent or more warlike than another based on the scriptures, it's really comparing different contexts. Now, that doesn't stop a lot of commentators from trying to do that, but there's really not the basis. The reality is that people in each of these religions have been able to use their scriptures to justify war and justify peace, uh, to justify bloodshed and mercy when they needed it. Let's look at some of those scriptures that talk about the relations between the Muslims and the other faiths. Islam specifically talks about Ahl al-Kitab, meaning the people of the book. And the book here doesn't refer to one specific book, but the revealed scriptures, that is the scriptures of the Jews and the Christians. You may hear different opinions and different accounts about what the Quran actually says about relations with the people of the book. And this is understandable because, as we have mentioned, the Quran was being revealed over a 23-year period and at a critical point during this time in the city of Medina and then the retaking of Mecca. And so there are different scriptures with different commands. And so Quranic scholars generally tend to say that the later revealed scriptures replace the ones that went before. And what they're doing is they're acknowledging that these scriptures were contextually dependent. They were revealed to address a specific context. Now, the first one that is quoted very often is from Surat al-Baqarah, which is the second surah of the Quran, and is one of the Medinan surahs. It is said that those who have become believers, that's referring to the Muslims, and the Jews, the Christians, and the Sabaeans, 
who believe in God and the day of judgment and strive righteously will receive their reward from the Lord and will have nothing to fear, nor will they be grieved. And that's in Ayat 62, verse 62 of Surat al-Baqarah. Well, this is a very informative scripture because we see here that the Jews and Christians specifically are being identified as having nothing to fear at the day of judgment. And so this is interpreted as meaning that they will go to heaven. Now it does very clearly identify that it's those among them who strive righteously. And so it's not simply being a declared Christian or a declared Jew, but essentially those who are trying to do what's right. In the ninth surah, Surah At-Tawbah, there's a famous command that says to fight those who do not adopt the religion of truth from those who are given the scripture until they give the jizya willingly while they are humble. And that's from the 29th ayat of um, the ninth surah. Now there's several things in here that are very significant. The first is the word to fight, and that word is qatala in Arabic. This is one place where there's a lot of misguided commentary on the internet, and you can see the value of understanding the Arabic that is used here. Qatala comes from the same root as qatala, which means to kill. Uh, the difference is there are different measures of that root, which is a very important concept in Arabic grammar. Now, qatala, with the insertion of the long vowel, necessarily means something that is a back and forth process. So there's a difference between qatala, meaning to kill someone, and qatala is to fight against them, and they are fighting back at you. It's not something you can do one way based specifically on the grammar of Arabic. But it's interesting, you'll find some commentators out there on the internet who apparently have had uh, a semester of Arabic or so and want to point out that this verse that is translated as fight the believers really means to kill the believers. Well, if, if you're familiar with the Arabic dictionary, you know what they're doing is they're looking at the wrong measure, they're looking at the wrong numeral with the root. It's something that you know, probably a second year student in Arabic wouldn't make that mistake. But in any case, here we are specifically being told to fight against those who do not adopt the religion of truth from those of the scripture, from Ahl al-Kitab. That's very significant. Until either they give the jizya, which is that tax, the poll tax, while they are humbled. And this is interpreted as meaning two things. Number one, that they will pay the tax, and by humbled means that they will submit to Muslim rule. Now, this is essentially the situation that we have in Medina with the constitution of Medina. The Jews, and not just the Jews, all the other people, even the pagans who were in uh, Medina at the time, submitted to Muslim rule, to the arbitration of Muhammad, and they did pay a tax as we discussed earlier. This surah has inspired different interpretations, and once again, we're gonna come down somewhere in the middle between these interpretations. On the one hand, there is the interpretation that this reflects benevolence and mercy to the people of the book, 
And since there is no forced conversion, they're not being told to convert or die, and they're being given the protection of living under the Muslim state. In this sense, the jizya is seen as a reasonable compensation for them not participating in the military activities that the Muslims had to participate in. And so in the sense of a 7th century context, this is seen as being rather benevolent treatment of those subject peoples. Now then, of course, there is the more literal interpretation of this, and that says that Jews and Christians will pay a special tax that no one else has to. They have to be humbled uh, before the Muslims, and therefore this is not equal treatment, and by 21st century standards, we would consider it to be discrimination. I think what we're getting to here is a very important challenge when we interpret historical records from centuries ago. And that is, should we look at the spirit of these things in terms of their context at the time, or do we take them literally? Do we look in a 7th century context at a command like this, which seems to be uh, quite kind and much more merciful than the things that were going on really in any other part of the world at that time. It's certainly much better than the treatment uh, one would have gotten in Europe at that time. Or do we take it literally and say that, okay, even in the 21st century now, all the non-Muslims have to pay a tax? Well, when it comes to religion, I can tell you the answer is there's going to be people who will do it both ways. There are those who see this as a contextual thing that should be interpreted and adapted to the times, and there are those who take it literally. Uh, for example, in Egypt, the Muslim Brotherhood organization won the first uh, really free presidential election that was held, but there was quite a stir that was caused when one of the members of the Brotherhood uh, talked about the jizya and said that it was a rather benevolent thing and it was a good thing that was sanctioned by Islamic law. Well, there was a furor right immediately after this was said, because Egypt is about 8 to 10 percent Christian, and so the idea that the Christians of Egypt would have to pay a poll tax for the right to be Christian in this country was uh, seen as something terrible and there was an uproar and uh, that person very quickly retracted it and the Muslim Brotherhood denied any association with this idea and during the brief time that they actually were allowed to remain in power before there was a coup, uh, there was no talk of actually uh, imposing the jizya. But again, it's this idea of when something is established in tradition, there will be those who want to follow it to the letter, and there will be those who want to look at the spirit of it. And our point, as we've said before, is not to say who is right, but rather to say that both of these interpretations are going to have their supporters and detractors. The point here really is that Islamic rule doesn't necessarily mean the existence of the jizya and doesn't necessarily preclude it. I think on a larger scale, we're also seeing something very important changing here. The earlier scriptures focused on this call to monotheism and assumed that there would be a reformation and other monotheists would join in. By this time, and over 20 years have passed, we're really seeing the idea of different religions coexisting next to each other and having to interact with each other as becoming more and more prevalent. 
Again, there's not this idea that the Jews and Christians are going to hear the message and accept the Prophet Muhammad's reformation, but rather the idea that Jewish, Muslim, and Christian relations are something that are going to go on into the future. The idea of a gradual transformation is really reflected in this. Well, to return back to the larger narrative here, if the Quraysh felt that Muhammad's preaching of monotheism was going to ruin the importance of Mecca and its central role, they certainly turned out to be wrong. In fact, those communication networks that spread throughout the Bedouin world, really throughout the entire Arabian Peninsula, became active once the city of Mecca became a Muslim city as well. And so rather than stopping the communications and the exchange of information and news that went through Mecca to all the Bedouin world, this actually became a conduit for the spread of news from Mecca, which was now the center of the Muslim community. And so we see a rapid transformation of the Arabian Peninsula. Now, unfortunately, as we mentioned, we do not have extensive records for uh, the Bedouin tribes, and most of them we don't have any written records at all. So we can't trace exactly how quickly Islam spreads throughout the Bedouin world, but we do know that it happens in a very rapid period of time. Remember, Muhammad enters the city of Mecca in 629. He will die two years later. But by the time of his death, we believe that the entire Arabian Peninsula, and I'm talking about the desert south of Iraq and Syria, which was the Persian and Byzantine empires, that entire Bedouin territory seems to have been converted to the banner of Islam. Most of the tribes had pledged allegiance to the Prophet Muhammad, which is as close as you got in that civilization to making a union. And this occurred in about a two-year period from the time of the conquest of Mecca. So on the time of the Prophet's death, we see pretty much the entire Central Arabian area, what is now mostly Saudi Arabia today, having become part of this Muslim community. Now this happened very rapidly. It didn't happen by conquest. It didn't happen by a Muslim army going out and defeating the various Bedouin tribes. It happened because of this network of communications that had everything centered in Mecca. Ten years after he and his followers had been driven out of the city of Mecca, they had not only returned to Mecca, but had essentially brought the entire Arabian Peninsula under the control of Islam. When the Prophet died, he left behind something that no one had been able to do before, and that is unify the tribes of Arabia. It was the beginning of a tremendous empire, but hard to believe this empire almost didn't come to be even after this incredible streak of victories. Upon the Prophet's death, the entire Muslim community nearly fell apart. If it had, history would have been very different. And that is what we're going to talk about in our next episode, how close this community came to falling apart after the death of the Prophet, and how that was not only avoided, but the community would spread to become a full-fledged empire. I hope you'll be back. I hope to see you then. Thank you very much for tuning in. Ma salama.